The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Micah 5, 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How are we this morning? I'm going to scoot this back just a smidge. It's good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I really want to welcome you. Uh, this is a fun day for us because at the end of the gathering, we get to celebrate two baptisms as a church family. So we're really, really excited about that. And so look forward to that. We'd love for you to, to head on down there with us at the end um, to enjoy that together. A couple things before we dive into the text this morning. Uh, the first is if you missed it last week, we have uh, these Advent devotionals available to you. Uh, these correspond with the story of Christmas. It's basically Basically, uh, a scripture and then a few questions for every day of the week, or every day, really, leading up from December 1st to December 24th. And so if you uh, don't have something that you're walking through this season, if you don't have a guide already, we would encourage you to pick this up. It's free. You can grab it right outside in the Connect area. It's our gift to you just to kind of guide your heart in the midst of this season. There's also a digital copy on our website as well. So if you're like, what is a hard copy book? This is this, but you don't have to. You can use the online one. Uh, Second thing is just a reminder about our calendar for the holiday season. So we've got a few more Sunday gatherings this week and the next two weeks. And then on December 22nd, we're going to be gathering with three other churches in our city to proclaim the good news of Christmas together through a traditional lessons and carols service. Really excited about that. You can find out information online. We have no gathering on Christmas Eve, not because we don't love Jesus, but because most of our church travels. And so we just want to give our volunteers. It takes somewhere between 30 to 35 people every Sunday to do this. And so we just want to give them space to go be with their families over the holiday. We're going to have a special time of prayer and worship the morning of New Year's Eve, and then our third birthday on January 7th, which we're really excited about as a church. Thanks. That was better than last week. I appreciate that. All right, grab a Bible. You're going to need it. Uh, Two places this morning. We'll start in Matthew chapter 2, and then we'll hop over eventually to Micah chapter 5, that passage that Morgan just read for us. So we'll start in Matthew 2, then we'll hop to Micah chapter 5. Let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll just get get right into it. Let's pray. Lord, we um, come before you humbly. Lord, even as we just sang about you are an awesome savior. And so we approach your throne of grace with confidence because of the work of Jesus, but with humility because of the work of Jesus. When we look back on the little town of Bethlehem and unexpecting parents and a manger 2,000 plus years ago, We want to see all that it means, not just for our lives, but for the trajectory of the whole world. 
So Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, you'd give us eyes to see the good news wrapped up in this familiar story. We wouldn't just let it be another season that passes much too quickly, frantically, full of busyness and consumption, strife and greed, but a season of patience and resting and waiting. The Savior has come and he's coming again. So do what you need in our hearts today to get us out of the mess and chaos of our lives to just see you, to hear from you. We ask that you would do what you've done for so long, generations throughout history, that you would take your word with the power of your spirit, put it into our hearts such that we are changed. But we believe you can meet with us today and we can leave here today. An ordinary, average Sunday can be a marked moment in our lives where you worked. So we believe you. We trust that you can do that. Probably sings in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Well, I want to start this morning with a confession. I know it's church, but let me be honest. I am a terribly horrendous gift giver. Like I am, I'm bad, bad. It's worked out great for me in my marriage. I've just tricked us into, hey, you buy what you want and I'll buy what I want and we'll call it good. I've gotten good there. But it's recently come out among my group of friends that I am in fact a horrendously terrible gift giver. In fact, this coming Friday, we have our staff Christmas party and I hate White Elephant and so we're doing Secret Santa. And I am such a bad gift giver that I had someone on our staff actually look me in the face and say, I'm going to be honest, I was hoping that you were not going to draw my name. Now, I won't say who that was. He's got a long beard. But... (laughs) Someone hypothetically said, I really wish it was you. And to be honest with you, I don't blame he or she. I don't. I don't blame them because I am. I'm really, really bad at it. And so I feel all of this pressure and anxiety about Friday and what's to come because I want to do a good job because here's the reality that we all know to be true. Gifts say something both about the person giving them and the person receiving them. For example, every single year, I ask Lindsay to get me the same thing, and she gets me the same thing. Onyx Coffee Roasters, which is my favorite coffee roaster out of Arkansas, does an advent calendar. And they it is incredible. It's 24 days of a pour-over worth of the world's best coffee. And her giving me that every year says something about her, that she is generous and that she loves me because it is not cheap. And it also says something about me, that I enjoy the finer things in life, Right? And so I feel all this pressure for Friday because I want to do a good job because it says something about me and how much I value our team and care about the person that I have, but it also says something about them. I want them to feel valued and loved and special, that they mean something because they do, and I want the gift to reflect that. Gifts say something about the one giving the gift and the one receiving the gift, and that's some of our heart behind our Advent series for this year. We're aiming to examine this familiar story of the birth of Jesus through the lens of the gifts of the wise men or the magi that they bring to Jesus shortly after his birth. And last week, Dan examined for us what the gifts say about the gift givers, what they say about the magi, this big group of travelers from the east who follow the star to see the child how their hearts are not one of indifference like the crowd of the Jewish people or opposition like King Herod, but rather the gifts show they have come to worship. They have come to set aside this moment and this newborn child as a king. Well, over the next three weeks, weeks, we're going to explore together what the gifts say about the one receiving them. What does gold and frankincense and myrrh say or declare or even better yet prophesy about this child? 
Now, just to be real clear before we get into the passage, I want to make sure that you know we're not making this stuff up out of thin air. This is not wild speculation. This is not like cute, fun Advent series that we thought would be a good time. This is rooted in something. There's a reason why we think these gifts say something to us. We believe that for two reasons. The first reason is because the historic Christian church has taught these gifts mean something for quite a long time. You know this if you've been around for a little bit. We care deeply about being in line with what Christians have thought for a long, long time. So take, for example, Arrhenius, who was the Bishop of Lyon, just about a hundred or so years after the life of Jesus. This is what he says. Having been led by the star into the house of Jacob to Emmanuel, the Magi showed by these gifts which they offered who it was that they who it was that was worshipped. He continues the quote later into exploring what each of these gifts mean. So the first reason we believe these gifts point to something is because of the early church. But the second reason, and I would say the more important reason, is because of the purposes of Matthew's gospel. So one of the things you have to understand about the book of Matthew is that he is writing from a Jewish mindset to a predominantly Jewish audience. And one of his primary goals is to help his Jewish audience see how all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. That Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is in fact the long-awaited Messiah who has come to usher in God's kingdom. And so all throughout the book of Matthew, it's going to be a ton of fun. We're going to study it next fall. He drops these little Easter eggs, no pun intended, to help his audience make connections and draw lines back from the Old Testament into the present day where they are living to see this child born in Bethlehem is the one they've been waiting on for thousands of years. That's Matthew's big goal. This child born in Bethlehem is the Messiah come to usher in God's kingdom. And so every part of the book of Matthew, including the first two chapters here in the birth narrative, including the gifts the Magi bring, are designed to show his Jewish audience, this is the guy. This is the one you've been waiting on. This is him. So what we want to do over the course of the next three weeks is draw out these connections Matthew intends for his audience to make between the gifts and the one receiving the gifts. I think it's going to be a ton of fun. We'll start today with gold. Gold was one of the most scarce and yet and valuable resources in the ancient world. In fact, because of just how scarce and valuable it was, gold was typically reserved and possessed only by kings or by monarchs. So kings were not the only ones in the ancient world who had wealth, but they tended to be the only ones who had gold. And if there was someone who had gold who was not a king, chances are they didn't have that gold for very long. Gold was for kings. To have gold, to spend gold, to use gold, to be given gold, all of that was a sign that you were royalty. You were a king. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 10 where the queen of the nation of Sheba comes to visit King Solomon, son of David. Jesus is like great, 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 and so on, grandfather. And Solomon takes her around the palace, gives her a tour of the city of Jerusalem, and it's so lavish and so abundant, her response basically is like, Obviously, you're king, and then she just gives him a bunch of gold. Like, her response to thinking this guy's the king is to give him gold. King, gold is for kings. And so very simply, right from the jump, in this first gift, when the Magi come, and they fall down, and they worship Jesus, and they give him gold, they are declaring Jesus is king. That this little human, born to unlikely parents, in a manger, surrounded by animals, visited by shepherds, hunted by Herod, is a king. But then the question becomes, what does that mean? 
And why is that good news for us? And here's where Matthew gets really, really fun. At least I think it's very fun. Because he's going to help us try to make some of these connections. So when the first gift is gold, Matthew's Jewish audience knows, all right, this child is a king. You only give gold to kings. This child is a king. And then they're going to start making connections back to what Matthew just told them in the first few verses of chapter 2. Well, let's look at that together. Dan walked it through last week, but just by way of review, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, what? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So these big group of travelers coming from the east arrive in Jerusalem, and they're like, we're looking for the king. The star points to the king. Where is the King And rightfully, look at what happens in verse 3. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They're about to quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We're going to turn there in a minute. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler or a king who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so track with me. Everybody good so far? Awesome, sweet. When Matthew highlights the gift of gold, he wants his audience to think of the broader story he just told them in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And when they think of the broader story he just told them, he wants them to think of this prophecy in verse 6, which is a prophecy quoted from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But in the Jewish context, how they understood stories and references from the Old Testament is when they hear that prophecy from Matthew, from the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, they wouldn't just think of Micah 5, 2, they would think of all of Micah chapter 5. And they wouldn't just think of Micah chapter 5, they would think of the entire story of Micah. So what he's wanting them to do when they hear the wise men give gold is to think about Micah. Tracking so far? Good so far? So then the question becomes, what's happening in the book of Micah? And that's what I want to talk about now. So turn over with me to Micah chapter 5. Here's the setup. Here's what Micah is about at kind of a 30,000-foot flyover. 700 years or so before the birth of Jesus, the people of Israel, the people of God, are under oppression from a foreign nation named Assyria. And they're there very clearly from the text as punishment from God because of their rebellion against him. So God has called them, called them to be holy, to be set apart, to, to live uniquely as his people under his rule and reign. And yet wicked king after wicked king after wicked king keeps leading them towards false gods. And so they're facing judgment and punishment for their sin. They're beat down and beat up and oppressed by their enemy, the Assyrians. And it's into that story that God sends Micah. Micah's a prophet. He's one who speaks from God to God's people on behalf of God. And this is what Micah says to Israel as they're under oppression from their enemy. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler, king in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Notice what Micah is saying. In the midst of their oppression and suffering and torment at the hands of their enemy, God says, I will raise up a shepherd king from Bethlehem. So here's Matthew going, hey, this child, make the connection. See what's happening. See what God is doing. Now, if you were to keep reading the story of Micah, you would see that God does this in part. He raises up a king named Hezekiah, who's a good and godly king, and empowers him to lead Israel to freedom from their enemy. But if you keep going just a little bit more in the story, you'll also see that now they're back under oppression. That when the Magi show up in Matthew chapter 2, Israel is once again under oppression from their enemy, the Romans. They're under attack, they're, they're pressed down, and that was not, the redemption of Hezekiah was not the final redemption. And so Matthew, 700 years later, is using this quote from the Magi to declare Israel. Notice it. God is doing it again. God is doing what he did 700 years ago again. Do you remember Israel when you were in slavery, in captivity, oppressed by your enemy? Do you remember what God did to raise up a shepherd king from Bethlehem to deliver you and bring you home? Guess what? That was just a foreshadowing. That what you're living through, what it's dealing with now is that it points even farther forward to a manger, to a boy named Jesus, to a new shepherd king from Bethlehem. So Matthew's using the quote of the Magi. He's using the gift of gold to show his Jewish audience everything Micah says in Micah 5 is true in a deeper, richer, more lasting sense in the baby born in Bethlehem. Which then the question becomes, what is, Math what is Micah saying in Micah chapter 5? You tracking so far? I know this is like, you're like, this is Advent, this is Advent, all right? Stay with me. I promise you the payoff is there, okay? What then does Micah say about the shepherd king in Micah chapter 5? Three things will hit him fast. Number one, he says the shepherd king from Bethlehem will defeat the enemy. The first thing the shepherd king is going to come to do is defeat the enemy. Look at verse 3 with me again. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. In other words, the enemy of oppression will be defeated and they will get to go back home. So the first thing Micah says this shepherd king is going to do is defeat the enemy. Here's how that points to Jesus. From the very beginning of time, the enemy of God and his people, who the scriptures call the devil, has been waging war via his kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light. So we don't, you and I don't live in a neutral world. We live in a world at war, cosmic, global, historical, spiritual war. This is the words of author C.S. Lewis, who puts it really well. He says, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. From Genesis 3 onward, Satan, sin, and death have been pressing on God's people, waging war on the people of God through temptation and suffering and hurt and loss. And so what we need is a king to come and deliver us. We need a king to come and set us free. We need a king to come and rescue us from our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And that's the good news of Advent, that we do have a shepherd king from Bethlehem whose name is Jesus. And so here's what that means. Despite all of the songs about Silent Night and we wish you a Merry Christmas, despite all the, the coziness of blankets and candles and lights, Advent is anything but cozy. 
It's anything but cute and quaint. It is not just a fun little cute bedtime story to help your kids feel good. This is the reality of a declaration of war. That's what Advent is. It's like Gandalf arriving at the Battle of Helm's Deep. It's like in Marvel where they're fighting Thanos and they like the little circles appear and then everybody who got snapped into oblivion all come walking back out, right? Like when we read Matthew chapter two and we hear the child is born, we're not meant to think, oh, that's really cute. We should write some songs about it. We're meant to think it's on. Like we are going to war. The king has arrived to defeat the enemy of darkness. He's come to make all things right. I'm getting ahead of myself. Number two. First, the king has come to defeat the enemy. The second thing the king will do is shepherd his people in strength. Notice verse four, Micah chapter five. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So Micah says, when this shepherd king comes, not only will he defeat the enemy, Satan, sin, and death that wage war on our souls, he will also gather his people to himself. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd gathers his sheep to himself. A shepherd walks among his sheep and cares for his sheep. He he tends to his sheep. He gives them food and water. He guides them and looks after them and protects them. This is what Psalm 23 says is true about our God, is it not? Right? This is what it means to be the good shepherd that he walks with us. He gives us what we need so that we do not want. Psalm 23 tells us he restores our souls. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He guides us in the valley of the shadow of death. He anoints our head with oil, and then he promises that we will dwell in his house forever. The shepherd king doesn't just come to defeat what is dark. He also comes to bring together into himself those who are his. He is the shepherd who gathers us. So Advent is a declaration of war against the kingdom of darkness. that They'll be defeated, but it's also a declaration of hope to those of us in the darkness that we have a good shepherd. And the third thing that Micah says the king will do is that he will make all things right and new. He says this in verse 5, and he shall be their peace. The word peace there. Throughout the Old Testament is the Hebrew word shalom. We've talked about this before, but Hebrew scholars have long understood the idea of shalom to mean that everything is right. Everything is as it should be, that there is flourishing in kind of the four primary relationships we have as humans. Flourishing with God, flourishing with each other, flourishing with ourselves, and flourishing with creation. Shalom, if you read Genesis 1 and 2, is how it was in the garden. Adam and Eve lived in perfect relationship with one another and with God. Shalom is what was broken by sin. Shalom is what is being constantly disrupted in our lives by the enemy. Shalom is what God's people have longed for, including you and I, for centuries. Shalom is what God has promised. This is God's design for his people. Everything as it should be, as the kingdom of God rules and reigns over all. Wholeness and rightness between you and God, you and each other, you and yourself, and you and creation. That's what God designs the world to be. And that's where we know we're headed, right? Revelation 21 is this beautiful promise as we wait for the second coming of Christ that he will return and he will usher in the fullness of shalom, the fullness of flourishing, the fullness of rightness. But Micah says it's even better than that because notice what he says in verse five. Look back at your scriptures. And he shall what? Be their peace. 
So not only is the shepherd king coming to usher in and bring peace, not only is he coming to make all things new, but he in himself is shalom. So notice this, Jesus doesn't just come to bring shalom, he comes to embody shalom, which means as you and I, as the people of God, walk in relationship with Jesus, as we live into union with him, we get glimpses in our lives of the future perfection he's going to do. So notice this, not only in Revelation 21 will he one day wipe our tears from our eyes, but even right now, Jesus, who is the shalom, offers to wipe away our tears. Not only in the future will we walk in perfection where sin will be no more and we will be fully perfected, but right now, Jesus, who is our peace, offers us escape from temptation. Not only in the future will we dwell in his presence forever where we will need no light, Revelation 21 says, because God's glory will shine so brightly, but right now he offers us his presence, not just with us, but in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So he's not just coming to one day bring peace, he is right now the peace on offer. He is right now the shalom. As he stands among his people, as he pushes back darkness, as he gathers us to himself as the shepherd, he offers us himself as shalom. So this is what the gift of gold points us to. It means this child in Bethlehem is the king who will defeat the enemy, Satan, sin, and death. It means this child born in Bethlehem is the king who will shepherd and gather his people. And it means this child born in Bethlehem is the king who will make all things new. And here's why this matters for us. I don't know how you're coming into the Advent season. Like you might be like me and you might be coming in with just a little bit of a limp. My 2023 was difficult. It was hard. Like I, I feel the weight of my enemies walking into this Christmas season. Like I can mark the suffering of my life over the past 11 months. Like I, I feel it, relational suffering, emotional suffering, the grief of loss that just seems to get elevated and heightened in this season, the, the grief of my own sin. I've shared a lot of this publicly. 2023 has been like the year of conviction for Tim. Like it just, I've shared a lot of like grumbling and impatience and pride. It feels like the Lord is just wanting to stir so much stuff up in my heart. And so I don't know, maybe you're like me, maybe you're not, maybe you need something different. But for me, I don't need cute and cozy Advent this year. Like I just don't, like I can, I like the cute and cozy. Like I'm a big fan of jazz music and lights and I bought these. These were my idea. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm here for it. I like the blankets and the candle. Like I'm here for all of that kind of stuff. But that, this little coziness of the season, doesn't deal with the suffering of the last 11 months. It doesn't deal with my sin for the last 11 months. It doesn't deal with my pain. It doesn't deal with the ways that I've been under the oppression of the enemy, both my own sin and corruption and Satan and death. And so what I need is not cute, cozy Advent. I need a shepherd king who has come to make all things new. And that's our hope this Advent season, that we worship not just a cute baby in a manger, but that that cute baby in the manger is king who even in that moment is still holding all things together. Even in that moment is still making all things new. Even in that moment is still conquering and ruling and reigning over all things. The one day he's going to come again to right all wrongs and make all things new. But yet even now, even now, he is working in such a way to bring the good news of Advent into the reality of our lives, such that we're not just waiting on redemption, but he's actually redeeming things now. He's actually making all things new now. And so Advent is this declaration into the suffering and sin of our lives that we are not alone, but a king has come. 
That's how I want to leave us this morning. I love how author Sarah Carter puts it. She was writing uh, right in the middle of uh, December 2020. So like the COVID Christmas, I don't know about you, we decorated in October, like you just needed it, right, that year. She's writing in the midst of that darkness and that suffering and that pain. And she puts it so beautifully. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's kind of long, but I think it's, I think it's helpful. This is what she writes. She says, the incarnation, Christ taking on flesh and coming into the world, is the invasion of God himself into the kingdom of darkness. And the sweet baby Jesus sleeping in a manger is the mighty God disguised in weakness, inaugurating his great ambush against Satan and his hideous cohort. Far cry from the typically American approach to the holiday season, but an image worth calling to mind given the times. How would Christmas look different if Christians celebrated it as it truly is, much more like D-Day than like a birthday party? The incarnation, God came among us, not to make us feel better or to inspire pretty songs, but to destroy the darkness that oppresses us. Christmas is a divine coup d'etat, overthrowing the ruling powers of this fallen world. God wants his world back, and he himself is coming to get it. Christ, notice how she finishes. Christ has ambushed hell and crushed it. And that triumph is already mysteriously underway in his silent invasion of our sin-darkened world at Bethlehem. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. That is comfort and joy of the highest kind. That's what we need during Advent. Not the cute and the cozy, not the, this is the season, let's just kind of, we need a shepherd king who steps into the suffering of our lives, steps into the pain of loss, steps into our sin and our shame and our guilt, who knows what it means to be relationally hurt, knows what it means to be betrayed, knows what it means to suffer, knows what it means to face every temptation and yet be without sin. And declare over all of it, I'm the king. So darkness is defeated. I'm gathering my people to myself and I'm making all things new. That is our hope this season. Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we love this season because of what it makes us turn our eyes towards, that in our darkness, you shine all the more brightly. So Lord, in the midst of our darkness of this year, in the midst of the darkness of our lives, maybe it's not even a year, maybe it's multiple years, maybe it's feels like our entire lives. You step into the midst of that darkness and declare through this season of Advent that the King has come. That this little boy in a manger in Bethlehem is the one who has come to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Has come to gather your people back to yourself, rescuing us from our bondage, rescuing us from our sin, rescuing us from the penalty that we deserve, calling us your own, then leading us to a world in which all things will be made new. So Lord, I pray this Advent would not be one we missed that reality, that we would be so caught up in the majesty of your glory taking on flesh that we would have no choice but to hope. You would force some hope upon us. Well, I can feel in my own heart all the exemptions I want to make to where your hope doesn't apply to me. And so, Lord, I pray you would force your hope upon me. 
Lord, for those of us in the room who think our darkness is too dark for the light of Christ, the darkness of our suffering is too great, the darkness of our sin is too broken, Lord, I pray that you would force hope upon us. We would have no choice but to hope in you, no choice but to rejoice in your goodness, no choice but to celebrate that the King has come. And it's not a maybe. It's not a, we'll see what happens. It's a declaration of victory. So Lord, help us believe and worship and love and glory in our King, a shepherd King from Bethlehem, promised by Micah thousands of years ago, fulfilled in the child of Bethlehem, still true today. You're a King. So we trust you. We worship you. And probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said.